Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with theoretical physicist Sean Carroll. He's a research professor at the California Institute of Technology and has published articles in such publications as New Scientist, The New York Times, and Nature. He describes himself as, quote, an old-fashioned theorist. Most of my work involves pencil and paper with occasional simple numerics or plotting in Mathematica, end quote. Dr. Carroll studies field theory, gravitation, and dark matter, among other things. But I began our conversation by asking him about the fundamental issue that most of us wonder about when we think about the universe, the Big Bang. What was happening before the Big Bang? How can we even think of the word before, which obviously refers to time when there was supposedly nothing before the Big Bang? Here is Sean Carroll. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and I think that I have to give a little bit of a hard time to my fellow cosmologists because we are sometimes sloppy when we talk about this uh, to the general public, especially. The fact is, we can talk about the idea of the Big Bang, and we often talk about it in ways that are a little bit more confident than we have any right to be. So the, the just to backtrack, because we need some of the background a little bit, Einstein, circa 1915, realizes what we now called the general theory of relativity, the idea that space and time are one thing, and they're not a fixed background on which everything else plays out. They have a dynamics. They have a life of their own. The, and an implication of this is the universe can expand, right? And soon thereafter, Edwin Hubble and others discovered that indeed the universe is expanding, and we can therefore play the movie backward. And what we now know from uh, the hard work of a lot of experimental and observational astronomers is that approximately 14 billion years ago, everything we see in the universe now was squeezed into a very tiny region that was very, very hot, very, very dense, rapidly expanding. And if we straightforwardly extrapolate using Einstein's rules of general relativity, we hit what is called a singularity. We extrapolate into the past, let me be clear. So we go into the past and we hit a moment when the density of matter, the density of energy, the curvature of space-time are all infinitely big. That's what we mean by a singularity. And what do we do then? That's, that's basically the equations telling us that the equations have failed. It's general relativity predicting its own downfall. So what, what it's really telling us is that we do not have the correct theory with which we should be talking about this moment, right? So we don't know what to say about this moment that we call the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. But there are two very realistic options on the table. One is that somehow the implication of standard general relativity is correct, and the Big Bang is the beginning of the universe. It is a moment before which there were no other moments. It is a boundary to time itself, right, that there is a beginning. If that's true, 
and this is often the impression you get from hearing cosmologists talk uh, in the in the public sphere. Um, if that's true, then it's wrong to say that the universe or the Big Bang or reality came into existence out of nothingness. It's very tempting to say that because our language that we use to describe these things was invented long before the physics was invented, and we're stuck with the language a little bit. But it's not that there was a before that was nothing, and then that transformed into the Big Bang, because transformations happen over time. And before the Big Bang, there was no time, right? I think this is what you're getting at in the question. But I, I want to emphasize the fact that that whole scenario might be wrong. We don't know. It's also possible that once we do replace our inadequate current physical theories with ones that do apply to this Big Bang moment, we'll find out that there was stuff before what we now call the Big Bang, that space and time existed perfectly normally, or maybe something else existed perfectly normally, but we could still be described by laws of physics. So it might be, as I like to say, that the Big Bang was the first moment in the universe, but it might also be that the Big Bang was just a phase the universe went through in a very uh, eventful and long-standing career. Let me give a challenge to you. <laughs> if, if you have a problem with the limitations of the English language, because it came before the physics, uh, to take a... Take a page out of Shakespeare's book. He invented 1,700 words about... Why don't, why don't you invent some <laughs> some new English words to, to describe what may be happening? It's a good point. And, you know, people have tried. I mean, Big Bang uh, was is not something that people were talking about in the 1800s, right? So that phrase was coined. And I should say that the phrase actually has two separate meanings that it's worth distinguishing. Uh, one is the one that we were just talking about, the idea of a first moment, a singularity, a beginning to the universe, the Big Bang event or the Big Bang moment, we could call it. But then there's a whole nother meaning because in the early days of cosmology, which, which is not that early. We're talking about the middle of the 20th century, okay, the 1950s. The Big Bang model was one of the models that people thought about, but there was also another model called the steady state model that was very popular. And if you believe in the Big Bang, then in early times, the, the universe had a finite existence since the Big Bang, and it started out hot and dense and glowing, and, and that makes predictions that have since come true. But the steady state model said there's a continual creation of matter even as the universe expands. And therefore, it was not hotter or denser in the past. It was the same conditions overall long in the past. And so these two models were sort of in conflict, and people tried to come up with names for them. Uh, the, the originator of the Big Bang model was a Belgian priest named Georges Lemaitre, and he called it the primeval atom. He had this idea there was sort of one super-duper atom that decayed into all the particles we see around us, and that's accompanied with the expansion of the universe. And Fred Hoyle, who is a partisan of the steady-state theory, uh, actually went on the radio and was making fun of the Big Bang. <laughs> he, was, he was trying to mock it a little bit, and he is the one, I think, I don't know whether it's spontaneous or planned, but he uh, dubbed the phrase the Big Bang model because it was a little bit less grandiose. Uh, he was trying to make it seem silly because he thought it was. Since then, we know that, uh, in fact, the Big Bang model one in in terms of fitting the data better, but uh, the Big Bang model is very different than the Big Bang event. So it's very interesting to see that sometimes these terms have such inconsequential beginnings, like I'm thinking of AI, which is obviously a term on everybody's mind these days, artificial intelligence, which was coined in the early 1950s at Dartmouth College by a young 
assistant mathematics professor, and and lo and behold, today, uh, the term or the two words are not going anywhere. It's very true, and it's it's uh, just a constant theme in science in physics uh, that we're not. Always good at naming things. Sometimes we're brilliant. There are people like、uh, Murray Gell-Mann, a brilliant physicist who just passed away,、um, who had a true genius for giving things names. He he's the one who gave quarks their name, and quarks is a great name because no one has any pre-existing connotations in their mind about what a quark is, right? He he stole the word from、uh, James Joyce, who was inspired by James Joyce's Ulysses.、Uh, it is also an an English dairy product. I- I believe,、uh, like a clotted cream. It is, <laughs> but no one is in danger of confusing the two <laughs> in context. I hope, right?、Okay. Um, I mean, sometimes it's a little bit more silly. There's a, a hypothetical particle called the axion, which is.、Um, Uh, a candidate for being the dark matter of the universe. We don't know if it exists, but it's a very popular idea, and it was named after a European laundry detergent called Axion.、Uh, it was a very, a very intentional name, sort of as a joke. And other times, things like general relativity, special relativity, quantum mechanics. These la- these labels just sort of grow up organically, and we get stuck with them, even if we realize after the fact they were not the most accurate way of describing what we're talking about. So before we talk about The before, just take us back to your early days, your early passions for physics, for the universe, and talk about when you first were introduced to the Big Bang, both as a model and a moment, as you clarified linguistically for us. <laughs> Thank you for that.、Uh, and when you started to first look at it and think to yourself, "Wow, this this is maybe not perfect, but but I submit myself to this." I Agree with <laughs> Lemaitre in, in in a sense. I I I, I accept. Yeah, I think that、uh, I can't trace exactly my intellectual course there, but it was not one of dramatic、uh, reversals and changes of fortune.、Um, you know, there is this thing called the Big Bang model, the idea that somehow or another, without being too specific, the universe started in a hot, dense state, and it's been expanding and cooling ever since. And so the, the model is a description of what's been happening for the last 14 billion years. Okay, and the model is correct. <laughs> It's been demonstrated to be true beyond reasonable doubt. In the 1950s, you could very, in a principled way. Be skeptical of the Big Bang idea, but it made predictions, and those predictions keep coming true. The most dramatic prediction was: well, if at early times the universe was hot and dense, it should be glowing, and we should be able to see the remnant radiation from the Big Bang. And this was a, a prediction made by George Gamow, Ralph Alpher, and I think Robert Herman、uh, in the 1950s. I think it was, and no one really took them seriously. And there's this wonderful story of.、Uh, Uh, there was a team at Princeton University, led by Bob Dicky and Jim Peebles and others,、um, who separately came up with a prediction that the Big Bang should be glowing, and started to look for it. They built a telescope on the on the roof of the physics building at Princeton, and what they didn't realize was that a few miles down the road at Bell Labs.、Um, uh, 
let me see if I get the names right. Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias uh, had a huge telescope, radio telescope, that they were using to scan the sky, and they found the remnant radiation from the Big Bang, which we now call the cosmic microwave background. And the two groups hadn't even talked to each other, but once they found it, Penzias and Wilson, you know, they called up Dickey at Princeton and said, what do you think that, that we found? And Dickey's like, ah, you found what we were looking for, the, you know, the leftover radiation from the Big Bang. <laughs> and since then... Uh, since then, there's not been much of a competition. The Big Bang model has been established, right? It just It's triumph after triumph. The Big Bang moment is a very different beast. There, you know, if we're honest, all we should be saying is we don't know what went on. There's different possibilities. Maybe it was the beginning. Maybe there was something before. We're not sure. So I think personally, you know, I... Never had any trouble believing the Big Bang model, uh, and I shouldn't have. I was right in that. Um, the idea that the universe necessarily had a beginning as an implication of the Big Bang model is much more shaky, and I'm not quite sure what my um, what my beliefs were about that. You know, certainly I, I tend to be. I try very hard to distinguish the parts of physics that we've really established and can move on versus the parts where we should be open-minded about uh, what might be the case. So here you are as a cosmologist, as a physicist, as a studier of, of history, that's obvious, and of present, and of, I assume, you, you, you try to study the future in a way. How much time do you spend every day just thinking about what could have happened before the moment, the what, as opposed to the how of the Big Bang? Yeah, I mean, I guess the right answer is a lot, but not enough. <laughs> um, that's one of the questions I really care a lot about. Like many theoretical physicists, I'm working on different projects at the same time. But this idea of the Big Bang is definitely one of my preoccupations. Um, it's part of a set of ideas called quantum cosmology. You know, we have, this is a very long story, but the short version of it is we have general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, that space-time is curved, it's dynamical, et cetera, et cetera. But as brilliant and as, as world-shaking as it was, general relativity is still a classical theory it still fits into the framework of physics as it was first described by Isaac Newton in the 1600s. You know, Einstein changed some of the details, but the basic paradigm was still there. Whereas in the 1920s, we threw away classical physics and we replaced it with quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is much less well understood than classical physics ever was, but we think it's right in some sense. Um, so the obvious thing to do is to try to reconcile general relativity, the best theory that we have for gravity, with quantum mechanics and get a theory of quantum gravity. We don't have that. You know, we've tried. We haven't really succeeded as yet. Um, so one little thing you can do, sort of, you know, a, a less ambitious program is rather than describing all of quantum gravity, including, you know, black holes and gravitational waves and all the different interesting phenomena that general relativity predicts, just focus in on the Big Bang. Just focus in on the universe. And in a lot of ways, the universe, despite being very big, is also very simple. It's a simpler thing than black holes colliding or something like that. So quantum cosmology is exactly that attempt, the attempt to understand what happened at the Big Bang 
in quantum mechanical terms. Uh, it was pioneered by Stephen Hawking, James Hartle, and other people. And we still haven't figured it out. Uh, in fact, we're not even sure what it will look like. Like sometimes in theoretical physics, you don't know what the answer is, but you sort of can vaguely see the shape of the answer in front of you and you're working toward it. And quantum gravity, I wouldn't quite put in that camp. I think that... Uh, there's a lot of different proposals out there as to how to make progress. Real progress is being made, uh, but it's piecemeal, and it's it's not even clear when something looks like progress whether it really is. So I definitely spend some of my time trying to trying to do this, trying to figure out was the Big Bang truly the beginning? Was it just a moment in time? Uh, but we don't have any definitive answers as yet. Just give us a picture how a real top physicist works. Are you talking about uh, you're sitting in a chair thinking or, or are you, are you scrambling with pen and paper i mean what is the figuring out process the nitty gritty the part that that the public wouldn't see that your students would wonder about what 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 do you mean you try to figure out are are you are you doing things or is it a, a psychological journey it's a, it's a great question, actually. And I remember once uh, I visited the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics in Santa Barbara, where I used to be a postdoc. And I was there with a friend of mine who's actually a TV writer in Hollywood. Um, he's written for Castle and Gilmore Girls and a whole bunch of things. And so he walks into this Institute for Theoretical Physics. And on all of the walls of the, of the hallways, there are blackboards. And all these blackboards uh, have in front of them physicists, you know, feverishly scribbling <laughs> equations and little diagrams on the blackboards. And my friend, you know, who was not familiar with the working habits of theoretical physicists was like, oh, my God, they really do that. <laughs> I thought this was just sort of a Hollywood cliche. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that's it. Like at, at heart, there are three things that happen. One is you think. Another is that you write, whether it's on pencil and paper or blackboard, or these days maybe you use your tablet and your electric pencil. Um, and the third thing is you talk to other people, uh, or you communicate with other people in various ways by giving seminars, by writing papers, by informal conversations. And that's it. You know, I mean, obviously the program of science more generally is enormously richer than that. We need experiments. We need observations. We need data to come in and shake us out of our dogmatic slumbers. But the theorists themselves uh, are thinking, yeah, and saying, well, what if it were this way? What would that mean? What would that imply? Like, I have this vague idea, you know, how can I attach some equations to this and make it respectable? What do you think it could look like in the most simple English words? I mean, do you have any, any way of telling us what that, that pre-moment or that, that uh, it's, it's hard to use words of time, but what, what that, what anything would yeah. look like? Is, is, is there... Is there a possibility that's in your mind that maybe a year or a or hundred years from now will, will be proven? I mean, do you have any, any hypothesis that, that we could understand in, in layman's terms? Sure. Uh, I mean, one little footnote from the philosophy of science is that science never proves anything. Uh, science suggests a whole bunch of different hypotheses, and it's basically, you know, you're a cellist, right? It's like basically uh, playing with the equalizer knobs on your uh, control board. 
uh, one of the hypotheses becomes more and more likely. It's like you're increasing the treble and all the other knobs go down, right? So you balance things in different ways and, and science sort of gives more and more credence to the theories it thinks are right. But you can never say that something is proven because tomorrow you might always get a piece of information that is in conflict with your idea and you need to be able to change your mind when that happens. What we can do, and for something like what happened at the Big Bang, this, these considerations are especially on point because we might never get direct observational evidence about what was going on near the Big Bang. It would be completely unsurprising if we just never knew for sure. Um, but what we can do is try to develop theories and use them to make predictions. And the ones that make good predictions that fit will become higher and higher in the esteem of theoretical physicists, and those that do not will go down and down. And these theories would presumably, you know, the physical theories that we know and love today, they take the form of some mathematical structure. Uh, the state of the universe is described by this kind of thing. You know, it's a set of points or it's a vector or it's a function of something. And then it evolves over time in a certain way, right? And there's going to be some equations that tell you what that thing is and how it evolves with time. And you'll use it to make predictions. I mean, that's why the Big Bang became popular is because it made this prediction of the leftover radiation. And then when we found that cosmic microwave background, we said, aha, I think this is on the right track. You mentioned something earlier that I just wanted to go back to quickly because it was rather striking to me. Take us back briefly, if you can, to the telescoping scientists at Princeton what what were they looking for? It, 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 I, I wasn't even sure if, if I misunderstood because it sounded like you were saying they were looking for remnants of the beginning. Is that right? It is in some sense. So if you the wonderful thing is once you once you have a good physical theory like general relativity, like Einstein's theory of gravity, you know it's pretty unforgiving. This is uh, the wonderful thing about physics is that a very simple set of equations makes predictions that are hard to wriggle out of sometimes. And so if general relativity is right with pretty good confidence, you can extrapolate backward in time to what was happening in not the Big Bang itself, but the first few seconds or first few minutes after the Big Bang. And like I said, it, it implies that the universe was hot and dense, and it was so hot that atoms could not stick together, okay? We think of an atom, you know, you've all seen the little cartoon of a nucleus of an atom with the electrons orbiting around it, and these atoms were bumping into each other with such violence that the electrons couldn't stick. So rather than a gas of atoms, you have a gas of individual atomic nuclei and individual electrons floating around the universe. But then as it expands, the universe cools, and at some point it cools to the extent that atoms can now form. So we call this recombination, and it's about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. That's the moment when the universe cools enough that the electrons join together with protons and helium nuclei, etc., to make atoms. And the reason why that's important is because suddenly the universe is transparent. If you just have a gas of electrons floating around, light cannot travel very far before it bumps into an electron and it is absorbed or scattered. Whereas if you have atoms like helium and hydrogen, uh, uh, photons of light can just pass right by them unimpeded. So at this moment, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, suddenly the universe becomes transparent 
it's glowing everywhere. Like every point in the universe is suffused with uh, many, many, many photons of light, and they start streaming freely through space. So those photons haven't gone away. They're still here today. And what the people at Princeton and the people at Bell Labs did is just point a radio telescope tuned to the right frequency at anywhere in the sky. That's the great thing about it. It's not like it's in a location. It's everywhere around us because we are surrounded by all this radiation from the Big Bang. Radiation that's, and that, you can't, that's 14 billion years old. Exactly. That's right. And it's a, it gives us... The, the first thing we did was detect that it is there. Um, what we have since become much better at since the 1990s is seeing that it's almost the same everywhere. You know, if you look in one direction of the sky versus another direction, this leftover radiation is almost exactly the same, but not exactly exactly the same. It's, it's a temperature, and the temperature from one spot on the sky to another spot, spot on the sky is different by one part in 100,000. Okay, a little tiny variation in the temperature. And now we can make a map of exactly how those variations in temperature are distributed on the sky. And that's a snapshot of what the universe looked like a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, which is pretty impressive. It's very interesting to me that a lot of physics seems obsessed with the obvious, which is what happened before. It, 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 there's not many fields that that have this overarching question that hasn't been answered, that, that people are... Are, are tearing their hair out uh, to answer, uh, not to imply that, that you don't have a great head of hair, by the way. Um, but is it, is it an obsession across the whole field with this one question? Do you think this will define your field until it's solved? You know, um, no. <laughs> it's really not like you get a very, very distorted view of what physicists care about by talking uh, to people like me. I care about this question. It, it, you know, it, it's something that I'm obsessed with, but uh, it is not something the majority of physicists spend much time thinking about. And that's a good thing. Um, I'm, you know, we talked about being privileged in being able to sort of have as my occupation thinking about these deep, profound questions. But most physicists are much more down to earth. You know, they're like trying to say, well, how can I make this ceramic material uh, become a superconductor at high temperatures, right? How can I send a lot of data over cables? You know, how can I make a laser that goes through this plasma and heats it up in the right way? Um, and it is correct and true that most physics should be like that. I mean, physics needs as a field to be close to the phenomena. It cannot wander off into the land of speculation entirely. But also, there has to be a little bit of physics, which is that kind of grand speculation. So even though individual researchers like myself might spend all of their time doing grand speculation, we are a minority within the field. And so uh, we, I do care a lot about what happened at the Big Bang, knowing perfectly well that I might die without ever knowing, right? It's, a, it's an ambitious question to ask, but we're not going to make progress unless we try. And so I'm fortunate enough to be able to spend a lot of my research time thinking about these wild questions. One of the things that makes you a compelling figure, I believe, is your curiosity for other fields, for other people's, your podcast on which you talk to a painter or a historian uh and you know i was talking with a couple musician colleagues of mine yesterday for this show and uh and i was i was telling them about the great italian conductor arturo toscanini who 
always felt that everything you did contributed to the music you made, every book you read, every person you know, every magazine, everything you do, the paintings, it all comes out in when you play the music, when you sing, when you play the cello, when you conduct an orchestra. And I see that with you, your curiosity for all these other fields, it goes somewhere, it contributes, it, it, it builds the tapestry. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic with this point of view, but I don't want to push it too hard because I'm very pluralistic about ways to be a good physicist or ways to be a good thinker, ways to be a good intellectual. My particular favorite way of thinking about things is to exactly, like you say, be very broad, think about a lot of different things, you know, be subjected to ideas from lots of different fields, uh, let them potentially provoke an interesting idea that I might not otherwise have had. And certainly my exposure to philosophy or economics or mathematics does affect and color and influence the way that I do physics. But I don't want to give anyone the impression that, therefore, that is the right way of doing physics. There are other physicists who are just the most narrow people you've ever met. <laughs> All they care about is doing physics. They want to sit in their uh, offices or kitchens or whatever and play with their equations. And they don't want to be bothered by all these other things. And they can be fantastically successful at that. And I don't want to you know, undermine people like that. I'm very glad that there are different approaches, because if anything uh, is clear from the history of physics, different styles make breakthroughs under different conditions at different times. We don't know the once and for all correct, right style for learning about the world. Different people are going to make contributions in their own ways. Have you always been one of those people who just wants to talk to people, wants to get to know people, hear their stories and, and compare notes? Has that curiosity always been there? Yeah, the curiosity has always been there, and it's always been wide-ranging. You know, um, I, I think that physics and theoretical physics in particular is sort of, in some sense, my favorite way of thinking about the world and learning about it, in part because you really can learn things that are wildly counterintuitive, yet demonstrably correct in some ways, right? Um, in other fields, it's just harder, right? Whether you're doing neuroscience or history or whatever, it's just harder to be absolutely sure that you're, you're on the right track uh, when you're saying something that seems wildly uh, unconventional somehow. Whereas in physics, sometimes the wildly unconventional thing is not only interesting, but dramatically uh, confirmed by experimental data. But I, like, but I want to understand the world in all the different ways, which is why, you know, one of the big reasons why I started the Mindscape podcast is because the, your professional job uh, as an academic is to do your discipline and do that all the time. And so, you know, in, in some ways, modern academia is very anti-intellectual. <laughs> it doesn't want you as part of your job to be uh, interacting with other ideas from other fields. Like, it's not that it stops you from doing that, but it rewards you for not doing that. And so the podcast gives me a way to explicitly read books, interact with people from wildly different perspectives, and I find it uh, wonderfully stimulating and refreshing. And I echo that and say the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a wonderful thing. Everyone should start their own podcast. Talk about the biggest problems that you see for your field down the line. Uh, you've, you've been in it for a long time. 
what do you what do you wonder about? What what do you see going wrong as physics progresses? You you talked about before how technology and science can sometimes develop at unexpected times and unexpected ways. Things can happen quickly that you you thought would take half a century. What do you what do you fear about physics, about cosmology, about science twenty years from now, a hundred years from now? You know, I think it's easy to overblow the fears. Um, science is pretty good at self-correcting. You know, uh, if someone has a really better idea, maybe they're ignored at first. You know, maybe people don't pay attention to them. But eventually, the idea will win out. I'm pretty confident. You know, I, I have I have a good amount of credence that the that the field of science overall eventually gets there, even though it doesn't always get there by the shortest possible route. Um, there are nevertheless a couple of things that I think are things we should keep in mind when we do science and try to do it as well as we can. One is that we're at the point now in science, especially in fundamental physics, where the questions we're asking might not be easy or possible to answer in a reasonable time frame, right? The theory of everything, what happened at the Big Bang. Maybe we get the answer to these questions in the next five or 10 years, but maybe it's the next 500 or 1,000 years. I really don't know. And I think we have to recognize that that's okay in some sense. We can't demand that the universe conform to our timescales. And the other thing is that uh, when you are in a regime where progress in physics is being driven by people coming up with speculative ideas rather than experiments and observations surprising us with new empirical results, it becomes easier and easier to have bandwagon effects, right? For the things that are considered to be acceptable and respectable uh, research programs to be defined what a small number of great minds are doing rather than attacking the problems that are presented by the data. And, and that's a problem. And I'm not quite sure how to solve the problem because it's easy to say, well, don't listen to the great minds, but then who are you going to listen to? <laughs> the, the, the less great minds? You know, like you have to make choices somehow about what research programs are respectable and worth following. And that's not an easy question to answer. We've talked a lot about time today. Can you tell us in simple terms about the arrow of time? What, what is this? It's something, it's a term we hear about. We meaning non-professionals. What, what is this? What's its significance and its history? This is an interesting issue because the arrow of time is something where it, it, progress in physics created the problem in a, very, in a very real sense. The arrow of time is just the idea that the past and future are different from each other. That's it. Okay, there's various ways in which the past and future are different. We remember the past, right? We don't remember the future. We sort of try to predict it with different levels of precision, but we don't have photographs or movies of the future in the way that we have them of things that happened in the past. Um, we were all younger, we'll get older, etc. And if you were Aristotle, if you were like a, a classical uh, thinker about the nature of time and space, that's, that's not a thing to be explained. That's just a fact, right? I mean, of course, the past and future are different. It's just the most obvious thing in the world. But the progress of physics, Newton inventing classical mechanics, Laplace understanding the clockwork universe implications of this and so forth, uh, led us to realize that even though the real world seems to demonstrate this huge difference between past and future, the laws of physics do not 
the fundamental laws in physics treat the past and future on an equal footing. They don't distinguish between them. There shouldn't be a difference between the past and future if it were just up to the fundamental dynamical laws of physics. And so a new problem arose because of progress in physics, namely, why does the past seem different from the future? And that's the arrow of time problem. And to be perfectly clear, we think we know the answer to that. The answer is uh, what we call the increase of entropy over time. The second law of thermodynamics, which is everyone's favorite, says that entropy, the disorderliness, the disorganization, the randomness, roughly, very roughly speaking, uh, of a physical system tends to increase with time. You can easily mix cream into coffee. It's very hard to unmix the cream from the coffee, right? And the amazing hypothesis, the sort of really deep, profound idea, is that that one fact that the universe generally grows more disordered over time explains all of the different ways in which the past seems to be different from the future. It explains why there's a difference between babies and old people, uh, why you have photographs of the past but not of the future, why you can make decisions that affect the future, but you can't make decisions that affect the past. Where does the present come into play here? What what role does, does the present have? Or is it so quickly over that it's a non-entity? Well, it's just nothing special. You know, from this point of view, there's there's a long and uh, interesting philosophical debate, and we can go into it if you want, between what is called presentism and eternalism. Go into it. Presentism. You, you, but feel free. Yeah. That there's, there's no, you know, the beauty of a podcast is, is there's not a clock saying we have to stop now. There could be many, many hours of this one. So let's, <laughs> let's see how far we get. Uh, the basic idea is just we're asking the question, what is real? What exists, okay? And surprisingly, maybe, physicists don't like this question. Like, they, they run away when you start asking this. Like, oh, you're doing philosophy now. Physicists are pretty down-to-earth, uh, hard-boiled characters when it comes right down to it. So they will do equations and make predictions. And then if you say, yes, but what is really happening, they don't want to answer that. So there's two possible answers to what is real when it comes to time. One is what is real is the world now. The world, the three-dimensional world we see around us with all the stuff in it, okay? Uh, at one moment of time, whatever that moment is, that's what's real. And the way that we talk about time is reality changes. And reality was something else, and it will be something else. But right now, it is what it is at this particular moment. Eternalism, by contrast, says, fo following the hint that it gets from the laws of physics, says, look, there's nothing in the laws of physics that makes now special in any way. The laws of physics just relate what happens at one moment to another moment. Whether those two moments are in the past or in the future or right now and a nearby moment, they're just related to each other by the laws of physics. So it makes more sense, this perspective says, to just treat every moment of time as equally real. The whole four-dimensional space-time is real. And you can see how this fits very naturally into general relativity and Einstein's picture of what gravity is, because space-time is the arena on which this all plays out. And that's the four-dimensional whole shebang. And so if, in eternalism, you know, uh, you, you really have to take seriously the idea that the now is just a label that people at that moment give to the moment that they're in. 
it's nothing special. It's nothing. It doesn't play a role in the laws of physics. It's just from the perspective of a person. At any one moment, if you ask the person what time it is, they'll say it's now. Do you think that that problem with being unable to explain the present or or saying the present isn't particularly special is due to a lack of explanation? Will there one time be a day when eternalism is is invalidated because someone will come up with something more specific to describe now? Well, it's always possible. Like I said, you know, science doesn't prove things. We're always open-minded in some sense about uh, having our theories or the credence we have in our theories changed by new information or new ideas. Uh, but I think I'm a very happy eternalist. I don't, I'm not looking for that particular change. I don't see any reason why uh, we should uh, try to improve it in any way. I think we should try to understand it in some way. Especially, like I said, you know, all of the progress we've had in modern physics has been away from presentism and toward eternalism. Um, it's very possible that future changes will give us something completely different from either one, right? Uh, you know, time itself might not be fundamental. It might be something that emerges out of some deeper quantum mechanical reality. We don't know. That's part of the, of the stuff that we speculate about, uh, but we can't talk about with any confidence at the moment. I wonder if you can talk about something completely different, because you know this is the program Talking Beats, and I talk to everybody about music, uh, what they like, what they listen to, what they fall back on. Everybody loves music in some form or another, and it is the great unifier, and that's the whole thing about this show, where for some little fraction of time, uh, you can find commonality with someone who, who you hate everything else about. Uh, so so <laughs> someone someone listening to you uh, what are they going to be surprised about or interested to know about what music you listen to, Sean Carroll? Uh, I don't. I don't think that my musical tastes are that uh, dramatic, honestly. Like part of them come from uh, growing up. I was a late comer to music, to be honest. Like I took violin lessons and hated it. <laughs> didn't really like it very much. Was never very good at violin. Um, so I didn't. I didn't like join the band or anything. Uh, it's hard in to high get good if, and, if you really hate it. Then I don't blame you for, for not for not getting. You good. know, I. <laughs> I was I was dumb. I was, look, it's all my fault because uh, had I picked up the saxophone instead of the violin, it might have been a very different story. But the in elementary school, they knew that. Like the the, the people in charge of the music program knew that. So the there was a year when you were allowed to join sort of the string instruments, um, and I did that. And then it wasn't until the next year that you were allowed to you know take lessons in in the uh, wind instruments and. Uh, I, I'm just not a violin person. Not that I have anything against violin people. It just wasn't for me. If I had joined the jazz band instead, it might be very different. Would you, so, have, come, you, know, in, in, would, would you have come on this podcast if I were a violinist and not a cellist? I would. You know, these days I'm way, I've evolved quite a bit from my previous uh, points of view. You know, one of the most fun events, public events I ever did was um, there were three of us on stage. Myself, Matt Heimovitz. Do you know him? Absolutely. Friend of mine. Great cellist. Great Cello guy. Cello player. Right. And Flea. Do you know him? <laughs> Flea. Uh, I don't know. Do I? I'm not. Is that a nickname or? You, you've heard his music. He's the bass player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. One okay. of the uh, you know, leading slap and pop bass players in popular music right now. And uh -huh. so 
the three of us, you know, took turns. They would improvise music. I would tell science stories. They would play behind me. They would jam together. And uh, that that kind of thing I just love now. Like So I've gone through phases where I was really into progressive rock, where I was really into jazz. And I love all sorts of different music now. And, you know, I, but I don't I don't put work into it. Like I let music find me in random ways and uh, discover it. And it's a lot of fun. What would we find on your playlists right now? Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, just just to show you, I will actually answer that by giving you the data. I will not cheat. I will I will tell you what I have most recently downloaded from <laughs> iTunes, which is where I where I get everything right now. Because you know, iTunes will tell you what you recently downloaded. So, um, one hundred reggae and ska hits. That's something I recently downloaded. Skapara Tuju, which is a Japanese ska band. Um, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Tool. The Charlie Hayden Quartet, Janelle Monet, Bill Frizzle, and Fela Kuti. Okay, we're going to get all that uh, queued up, and I'm sure people <laughs> will 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 uh, screen record that or repeat it and and listen to it uh, and and take your recommendations uh, sincerely. <laughs> do you, do you know that Fela Kuti did a live album with Ginger Baker? I did not know that, but uh, but I will look for it. It's on uh, iTunes or on YouTube. It is, yeah. It's a uh, you know Ginger Baker, of course. Uh, I was very much into classic rock during one part of my life, um, and I still am. I still love it. Like I was listening to a video or watching a video by Rick Beato. Do you know him? Absolutely, great artist. Yeah, so he does these. Yeah, he does these wonderful videos, and so he's doing uh, why this song is great. And he, uh, I was listening to the video he did about Roundabout by Yes, and he lists you know the other songs that were you know hitting the billboard charts the year roundabout came out and it was led zeppelin and david bowie and paul mccartney and the who and it's like ah oh, i should have i should have been born back then those 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 were my times <laughs> but yeah ginger baker the drummer for cream you know uh after they broke up, he did lots of weird things. And one of them was spend time in Africa with Fela Kuti, who was, you know, this brilliant um, mus musician who would, you know, put together all these wonderful percussive uh, uh, big bands, as it were, in Africa. And they, they had a fantastic jam live album that you should definitely check out. You know, when you think about all these songs, oh, I wish I was around in that decade, picture this, a concert in which Beethoven is conducting and two symphonies of his are premiered he's on the podium <laughs> the the choral fantasy which is a big work for chorus orchestra and solo piano is also on the program he has to repeat movements of symphonies because the audience is going crazy and he's sort of half deaf at this point uh talk about uh i i wish i'd been around then i mean <laughs> i know no i mean it's uh i i almost joke when i say oh i wish i would have been around then like i'm very very glad that i uh you know am born later rather than earlier as, as much as individual events in the past are kind of impressive and awesome and especially the the appreciation and love for classical music and also classical drama and things like that right i mean you it gives you the impression that people were uh, a little bit more culturally attuned at the time but i think that's false because probably most people weren't going to beethoven concerts most people weren't going to concerts at all people were trying to survive they were peasants right and we live live now in an era when you and I can do a podcast and anyone in the world can listen to it. And I think I would not want to give that up to live at the time when my favorite artists were performing live. Sean Carroll, you've been very open on your website and other places about your personal beliefs. And, and it's, a, it's a, a personal issue about 
religion, and and you've been clear that that you you like the term naturalist as opposed to atheist. Can you explain why, and then explain why or why not there's the ability for science and religion to coexist peacefully? So I don't actually mind the term atheist. You know, I it's not the one that I choose because it just doesn't convey as much information. Atheists are someone who don't believe certain things. Uh, and I would rather explain what I do believe, which is that there is one world, the natural world, which obeys the laws of physics. Uh, there's not a separate supernatural realm. And that that set of beliefs is, is I think, adequately uh, captured by the word naturalist. And so it's a positive statement about what I believe. And I do think that um, it's a tricky issue, both because a large number of people disagree with my belief about that. A large number of people are very religious. And also because it's a, it's highly personal and emotional, these issues uh, on, on both sides, you know, I mean, religious people, but also atheists can get very, very, uh, um, worked up, let's put it that way, about these kinds of issues. So it's hard for people who disagree to have a gentle, productive conversation, but I would I would like that to happen. Now, I actually don't think that they're, you know, if, I think that science and religion are in conflict to the extent that religion makes statements about how the world works. And every religion I know makes statements about how the world works. You can define religion in a sufficiently vague way that it's just kind of a feel-good attitude about things, and then it doesn't say anything. But that's not what most people mean when they talk about religion. So I think that it is still possible to learn things from religious traditions, things about how to live your life, how to think about meaning and purpose and morality. Uh, you shouldn't take them without any grains of salt just because they come from religious traditions, but it's absolutely a source for interesting insights into the human condition. And what I think furthermore, and, and this is where it becomes a little stickier, is I think that scientists and philosophers who are naturalists should say so out loud. And the reason why is that I put it this way, like the kinds of things I do for a living, the kinds of ideas I think about, we already talked about, you know, these ideas about cosmology and grand theories of the nature of the universe, they do not have any direct impact on people's lives in terms of, you know, their economic condition or uh, improving technology or solving disease or anything like that. I nevertheless think they're worth doing just for intellectual curiosity reasons. I think that part of what it is to be human uh, is to think about these things. So I think it's worth doing even without direct technological spinoffs. But there's one exception. There's one place where what we've learned about the fundamental nature of reality has a huge effect on people's lives. Namely, we've learned that God doesn't exist. We've learned that the universe can just go on with the laws of physics. It doesn't need any supernatural help. That's hugely important for how you think about who you are as a person, what our role here is in the universe, how you should live your life, all of these things. So here we are, a bunch of people thinking these abstract, you know, big picture ideas with almost no direct ramifications for people in the world, except for one, and we're reluctant to say it out loud. <laughs> I think that's kind of backwards. I think, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but I think that we should be willing, we shouldn't hide our feelings about this because we don't want to hurt other people's feelings. We should treat other people as grown-ups who are willing to hear, you know, can take it when we say this are, these are the implications of what we learned for the fundamental nature of reality. I don't know who, who 
who you were as a kid or how you grew up, but I, I wonder if, if you had grown up extremely religious, just painting a scenario that I don't know if it's true or not, extremely religious and extremely drawn to science. I, I, I wonder how you would have reconciled. It, it sounds like there, there has to be a flashpoint at some point where you say, this is it. Uh, I'm a scientist. Yeah, I'm not sure if there has to be just because empirically there are a whole bunch of different actual people. Um, there are people who, there are many, many people, I think the, the vast majority, who end up becoming professional physicists or cosmologists become atheists and naturalists wherever they started from. There's plenty of stories of people who grew up in religious households and, and left that behind. Um, there are also stories of people who are working physicists who are still religious. So there are even people who are atheists and became religious. So I don't think there's any necessary connection, even if there is a trend. Um, and I like to think that people reach conclusions on the basis of evidence and and good reasons, <laughs> not just where they happen to begin. Um, and there's always exceptions to that. But look, there are more and more people in the world who are naturalists. And I don't think that's a, a coincidence. You've talked about long-term projects, long-term goals. What What's a more short-term project you're working on that, that really excites you? Oh, I think that there, I mean, there are a lot. Like, in fact, the, it's interesting. The way that professional science gets done these days um, is a little bit different than the way that, let's say, history or uh, English literature work gets done because academics in the humanities progress by writing books, okay? You write your PhD thesis, you spend your next couple of years turning it into a book, and then you write your next book, et cetera. But progress in science is almost all driven by papers. So you write... Uh, an article, you know, however many pages long, it need not be that long, and then you get it published in a refereed journal, and that's how that's how you make progress. And because of that, progress is sort of a little bit more piecemeal. Like you don't need to wait five years to announce progress. Uh, you know, a typical theoretical physicist will write anywhere between two and ten papers per year. Uh, so you have many different things going on at any one time. So I'm working on a bunch of things. You know, in quantum mechanics, uh, we, we, we haven't mentioned this explicitly, but my favorite version of quantum mechanics is the many worlds version of quantum mechanics, something pioneered by Hugh Everett in the 1950s, which says when you measure a system, the, the universe branches into different copies of itself, which are slightly uh, differentiated by what the observational outcome was for what you measured. I think this is a great idea, but it's not yet fully developed. We haven't yet completely established how that bold idea maps onto reality. So a lot of what I'm doing is just trying to develop the ideas behind the many worlds interpretation to make them map onto reality in a more tangible way and use that to make predictions. Like I'm finishing up a paper right now uh, that predicts here's how you could set up a quantum mechanical experiment to violate energy conservation. And this is one of those things which if you asked most physicists if it was possible, they would say no, and then you explain it to them, and they would say, "Oh yes, it's obvious." <laughs> so that's that's sort of my that's my sweet spot for uh, writing physics papers. Is I like to th I like to write papers where, when I start them, people go, "It's false," and then after I do them, they say, "Well, that's obvious. We knew that all along." <laughs> well, uh, Professor Dr. Sean Carroll. Uh, I look forward to the paper. I hope I'll be able to read some of it, uh, linguistically speaking. <laughs> and, uh, and thank you so much for your insights. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.